Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, and I will explain in a couple of minutes why we're going to be in Luke 8. But you can go ahead and get a head, a head start on where we are by opening your Bibles there to that passage. There is a fairly well-attested study that says that the average human adult makes up to 35,000 decisions every day of his or her life. Our study says that that average adult makes 226 of those 35,000 decisions related to food consumption. And hopefully the answer on all 226 decision points related to food is not eat it. But we are blessed to be able to make 226 different decisions every single day with regard to food, and that's just a very small subset of all of the other different kinds of decisions that we make on a daily basis. And if you, if you do the math on that, that equates out to about one decision every two seconds of the average waking day. And over the course of your lifetime, if you do the math in the opposite direction, it means that you will make well over one billion decisions during your lifetime, that you will make over one billion choices in your life to do A or B, C or D, and life is really a series of these choices, and the sum total of your life is essentially going to end up being equal to the choices that you make. And every choice is a decision that is an answer to a question that is posed to us by life. What will you do? A or B. And every day we're confronted with decisions about the questions that life presents before us every single day, once every two seconds. And, and life really is a, a series of forks in the road, and everyone must consistently and constantly be choosing what direction you're going to take. Now, having said that, that there's all these different decisions that are being made, we're very well aware that not all decisions we make are of equal importance, right? That there are some decisions that are far more important. A decision about the question, should I buy this house, does not equate with, should I eat that donut, right? These decisions are not in the same weight category or the same classification as one another. There's a, a taxonomy to our decision-making process, right? But there are some decisions that we make them, and then everything else in our life is supposed to fit within the parameters of those big choices, and then we make smaller choices based upon sequential subsets of those decisions, where we, we prioritize every decision we make based upon an overarching priority that was previously set by another different, more important decision. And this morning, as we turn our attention to our text here, there is one question and there is one answer that governs all other decisions we make in life. And we've got one, if you've got one billion choices to make in your lifetime, there are seven billion people on the planet who are all making this one choice. And everything else in our lives, whether we're believers or not, flows out of what we do with this one question and this one choice. And that question is very simple. Who is Jesus and what do I do with him? It was the question that was asked on the morning of the triumphal entry that our pastor John read to us this morning. The, the Jews there who were there said, who is this Jesus? 
as they were grappling with the nature of who he was and what they were to do with him. But for us, far and away, the answer to this question, who is Jesus, that is the most important decision that we have in our lives. It is the answer that will drive every other decision that we make because it sets broad parameters and direction and priorities for our life. And and if we answer it correctly, we will structure the rest of our life according to the answer to that question. And if we do not answer that question correctly, similarly, we will structure everything else according to the negative answer to that question. It's a question that that we must get right. And really, it's a question that the last three sermon series that we've done together have all pointed back to. They've all been pointing back to this one central theme that Jesus is the most important feature of your life. Your perspective on him all points back to the fact that he is central to your life. And every single human being must come to grips with, who is this Jesus, and is he God, and how will I live in light of that knowledge? But every sermon series we've done for the past number of months have all pointed back to that central truth, right? The Beatitudes, you remember that? We went through those passages, and we were essentially given what God's expectations are for his followers. And as we studied those expectations, we discovered that Jesus is the full embodiment of God's expectations. He perfectly fulfilled who we are to be. He perfectly fulfilled God's expectations. He is, for us, the model of what God desires us to be. We then looked at 2 Peter chapter 1, and we talked about how do we get our sanctification unstuck? If we feel like we're not moving anywhere, we're not moving fast enough, how do we get it going again? And if you boil it right back down to the core of the issue, the answer to that question is just get to know Jesus and what he does for you and and look to him and find your strength in him. We fast-forwarded then into the second half of 1 Peter 1, and we, we took a look at how the Word of God does its work in our lives. And the answer to that question was essentially, the Word does its work by showing us the person of Christ, right? And so in everything that we've been talking about, it all keeps coming back again and again and again to the person of Jesus Christ. He is central to our lives, He is most important. He is preeminent. And everything about who we are and what we do and every single choice that we then make has to flow out of an awareness that he is central and most important. And that's the process of sanctification. That's the process of the Christian life. So in light of the fact that Christ is to be central to our Christian life, it makes sense for us to spend some time looking at him and how our knowledge of him should be impacting our daily life. And there's a a particular passage that deals with this. It's Luke chapters 8 and 9. And that's the reason why I had you turn to Luke 8. It's because this really is an amazing couple of chapters that I want us to spend a number of weeks going through because it really is the climax of Luke's attempt to demonstrate who Jesus is and what you are responsible to do with that knowledge. There's an amazing couple of stories that are, that are kind of packed into the, into this section one after another and they kind of play like a bit of a highlight reel as Luke seeks to speed up the pace of revealing to us as his readers that your Jesus 
is not just a man, he is God. And that knowledge comes with implications, ramifications upon your life. And so I'm looking forward to jumping into this text over the next couple of months and really pulling out the implications of of not just who is Jesus, but why does that matter and what do we do with it? In light of the knowledge of who he is, how are we now to live? Because that is the crux of the matter that we've been looking at. He is central. So we must look at him, know him, and then apply the truth we find about him to ourselves. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going here. That's why we're going to Luke chapter 8. Now, in order to really dig into these chapters, we do need to spend a little bit of time today kind of ramping our way up into this text in particular to find out what Luke is trying to do. If we parachute ourselves just down into chapter 8, we're going to miss really a lot of the momentum that he's been building in chapters 1 through 7. So I'm going to very quickly survey what's been going on in chapters 1 through 7. I think that will be profitable with us. We're going to flip around here for the next five, ten minutes quite a bit, but I think if you stay with me, you'll get a good sense of what Luke is trying to accomplish, okay? So go back with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and Luke right away tells us what he's trying to do, okay? Luke is a guy who was a physician by trade. He was a very careful researcher, and we're told here in the first part of Luke that, that he goes back and he does interviews, he gathers evidence, and, and he presents a case, and he does it forensically for the sake of someone named Theophilus. He says, look, a lot of people in verse 1 have undertaken to compile an account of the things that were accomplished among us, and then he talks about the research that he did. But then in verse 3, he says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything Think carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Here's what Luke's trying to do. He's saying, I want to prove to you, Theophilus, his audience, this man for whom he was writing, I want to prove to you exactly who Jesus was. And I want to answer that question, Theophilus, for you once and for all in such a way that you can have no doubt that this is who Jesus was and is, and here is what you now must go do about it. That's the intention of his book. And so really, Luke then begins to inductively build a case. He doesn't just come right out and say, this is who Jesus is. That would be kind of a deductive argument where you make a statement and then you prove it. Luke actually builds up all the evidence together And then he draws the conclusion at the end. That's what he's seeking to do there. Now, if you look at this passage here, uh, chapters 1 through 9 are really Luke's presentation of who Jesus is. Chapters 10 through 24 in the book of Luke really are why that mattered. Our chapters 8 and 9 are really the climax, the conclusion, the crescendo of Luke's attempt to prove that Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was not just a teacher. Jesus was, in fact, God himself incarnate in the flesh who had come here to communicate to you all about who God himself is. And so chapters 8 and 9 are really kind of the the crescendoing of Luke's attempt to prove the nature of who Jesus was, okay? That's what's going on here in this book. So let's just kind of go through the first several chapters together, and I'll show this to you. In chapter 1, verse 32, 
the angel is coming and appearing to Mary and essentially forewarning her, this child that you're going to have is not going to be exactly normal. He says in verse, in verse 32 to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So right away before Jesus has even stepped onto the scene, the angel is forewarning Mary. Essentially, it's kind of like a, a product warning label. Uh, this is going to be different. Okay, This individual that you are about to give birth to is not going to be the average human being. In fact, this is going to be none other than the Messiah, the son of David, the Most High himself. And so Mary is essentially warned there right away. You skip over to verse uh, 66 of chapter 1. We're told that all who heard about the birth of John the Baptist kept these things in their mind, saying, what then will this child turn out to be? Because they had been told that he was coming to forewarn them about the coming of the Messiah. So, so strange and abnormal things are happening. People are trying to grapple with what is going on. Fast forward to chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, and the angels appear to the shepherds and they say, don't be afraid for I'm bringing good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you, and it's very clear, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the case begins to build here. Jesus is now here, and right away there's an announcement of precisely who he is. Later in that chapter, chapter 2, verse 26, we're told that his parents take him to the temple And they immediately meet people there who understand who Jesus is. For it had been presented to this man named Simeon in in chapter 2, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And Simeon immediately recognizes Jesus for who he is. Fast forward down to chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus is a little bit older, 12 years or so have gone by. And Jesus hangs back in the temple while the whole caravan pulls out of Jerusalem, right? And in verse 47, he's there for three days in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teacher, listening to them and asking them questions. And all, we were told, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And here we have a question that is presented by these people that will be repeated again and again and again in the first nine chapters of Luke. These teachers are basically asking the question, who is this kid? Who is this? And where is he coming from? And in verse 48, his mother uh, verbalizes the question. She's astonished. And she says, son, why have you treated us this way? We've been looking for you. And Jesus says in verse 49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? His answer to her question is basically, don't you understand yet who I really am? Okay. Fast forward to chapter 3, verse 16, and now we're into his adult ministry. And John says, look, you, you think I'm something. Just wait until you see the one who's coming after me. And John begins to do his job and to announce the nature of who Jesus is. Chapter 4 Verse 16, now Jesus is fully grown, he's an adult, and he begins to present himself to his people. He starts out, he comes right back from the temptation in the wilderness, and where does he start? He starts in his hometown. Verse 16, 
And this is the first time where he begins to pull the veil back on himself and very slowly begins to show people, this is who I really am. In verse 4.16, it says, He comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, stands up to read. He reads a prophecy from the book of Isaiah in 17 and 18, and then something shocking happens. Down in verse 21, when he finishes reading, he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone in the room, their jaws hit the ground and they don't know how to handle this because they say, I think he just claimed to be God. And yet we know who he is. He's Jesus who grew up here in our midst and they seek to take him out to the cliff and toss him over because he, as they think, has been blaspheming. The first time Jesus begins to unveil himself, it doesn't go so well. People don't accept it. Chapter, thir- chapter 4, later on in verse 34 and 35, the people have completely missed him. They tried to kill him when he begins to reveal himself. But in verse 34, someone actually recognizes him. Who is it? Verse 34, it's the demons. There's a man who is possessed by the demons, and the demon sees Jesus, and he screams, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? You have come to destroy us. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. So in the spiritual world, there is no confusion about who Jesus was. They got it completely, even though everyone who knew Jesus best had completely missed it. And Jesus says, Be quiet because it wasn't time for that kind of proclamation to be made. Chapter 4, verse 41, the demons don't be quiet. More demons come around, and they come around shouting, and there's many of them, you are the Son of God. But Jesus rebukes them, and he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. That's very interesting, right? These demons knew the truth about him, but Jesus did not want them speaking the truth about who he was because he wanted to begin revealing to that in his own way, in his own, at his own time, and he certainly didn't want it coming out of the mouths of demons, right? He wanted to fulfill prophecy. He wanted to teach these people and to let them see the reality of who he was based upon his works and his words, not the words of demons, Right? You keep going in chapter 5, verse 21, and Luke continues to build his case. And, and Jesus is healing, and he's forgiving sins. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to take issue with that. They say, and here's the question again, Who is this man who is speaking these blasphemies? For no one can forgive sins except for God. Well, they got that right, but they kind of missed the point of what Jesus was trying to communicate. Jesus is aware of their reasonings, and he says to them, why are you reasoning in your heart? Go over to chapter 7, and we're skipping over a lot of different texts here where Luke is trying to build his case. Luke chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus really goes above and beyond, and he raises a man from the dead, which is something that only the Messiah could do, and that was prophesied back in the Old Testament. And the people begin to understand. Ding, the light goes on, right? Because watch what they say. The dead man sits up and he begins to speak. And Jesus hands him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. 
What you see going on in that verse is really this disagreement where some people think that he's just a prophet and other people are beginning to wonder, is he actually God himself? God has come and visited his people. But they're all asking the question together, who is this person? Verses 18 and 19, even John the Baptist, who you would think would have had it clear, he's beginning to wonder because he's been stuck in jail for a long time. And he's saying, look, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, begin to do your work and spring me out of here. But if you're not, tell me. John says in verse 18, summoning two of John's disciples, John sent them out to the Lord saying, are you or aren't you? What is it? And when the men come to Jesus and ask him that question, Jesus begins to quote prophecy and he begins to unveil himself very slowly saying, you should be recognizing me by now. You should be recognizing me. But everyone, including John, is asking the question, who are you and what will you do next? Luke 7, 49, we fast forward there. And again, the people with whom he's reclining at the table are asking themselves, who is this, and don't miss that word, man, who even forgives sin. Everyone's got the same burning question. Who is this Jesus? Chapter 8, verse 25. We're going to skip over the text we're going to be in here in a little bit. I want to just show this to you through the end of chapter 9. Chapter 8, verse 25. Jesus stills the sea. His disciples see it. And they ask the question, Who is this then that he can command the winds, the water, and they obey him? Chapter 8, verse 28, he goes to heal a demoniac and cast out the demons. And the demons say, what business do we have with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? It's kind of interesting that the very question the disciples ask is immediately answered by the demons themselves. The disciples see the miracle and they say, who are you? And the very next text tells us the demons say, you are the son of God. You keep going through chapter Eight, and you get down to uh, chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 9, and Jesus has demonstrated his deity, and Herod begins to hear of it because Jesus is doing such amazing things, and there's no question now that only God could do these things, and Herod begins to say, I had John beheaded, but who is this man whom I keep hearing such things about? And finally, down at the end of verse chapter 9, In verse 18, Jesus himself forces the issue. He's alone. The disciples are with him. And he begins to question them saying, who are the people saying that I am? You see him repeating the question that everyone throughout the first nine chapters has been asking. Everyone's saying, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And here Jesus says, who are the people saying I am? The disciples answer. And then he gets really personal in verse 20. And then he says to them, essentially a direct call for their faith, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, you're obviously the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus then, eight days later, down in verse 28, completely unveils his glory and reveals himself to them as being none other than God himself. And he shows them himself essentially in all of his earthly glory there in chapter 9 at the transfiguration. There is now no doubt who Jesus is. And yet, the poor disciples, who now fully understand and they alone have the answer to who Jesus is, 
they don't quite get the implication of what this means for them and for their lives. You see, they knew the truth, but they failed to properly apply it. Because what do they do in verse 46? Jesus picks up the corner of his heavenly glory and shows them, this is who I am, God himself. And the next thing they say in verse 46 of chapter 9 is this. An argument started out amongst them as to which of them might be the greatest. Are you guys kidding me right now? You just saw God himself, and your response to that is to wonder which of you are the greatest? Maybe we should just back up the train a minute and think about his greatness. That's what you should have been doing here. They completely missed it. And Jesus then, in his very kind, loving, and patient way, pulls them back in and instructs them on the nature of discipleship. He's saying, no, guys, my brothers, you're missing the point. Come back and look at me and understand who I am and the requirements that who I am has for you and for your life. And that's the whole scope of the run-up that we're going to be looking at here together. That's kind of the, the big context of what's going on here in Luke, where Luke is trying to prove this is who Jesus is and this is why it matters. And I am very eager together to jump into this and look at the person, the work, the nature of Christ and reorient ourselves to our Lord so that we do not make the same kind of mistakes that the disciples who were walking with him made by thinking that our life is really all about us. In reality, it's not at all about us. It's all about him, his greatness, his glory, and what we must do now as his disciples in light of our knowledge of him. So go back with me now to Luke chapter 8, and we'll dig into a particular text here together. Okay? The key question that overarches this whole section, who is this guy? And people are starting to perceive who he is. And, and before Luke kind of spins the dial and picks up the speed of the narrative to prove this is without a doubt God himself, he includes this little passage, verses 16 through 21, saying, before you draw your conclusion, before you come to the conclusion that's going to be presented in chapters 8 and 9, make sure you understand the implications of knowing Christ. Because here in these verses, 16 through 21, our text for today, Luke gives us two essential requirements that flow out of knowing Christ. Okay, Let's look at these together, and this is a great way to preface our study about the nature of Jesus over the coming weeks. There are two essential requirements that we must understand before we fully grapple with the conclusion that Luke is going to force us to work through. Here's the first. The knowledge of Christ demands your attention. Verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples here, Now, no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So, take care how you listen. For whoever has... To him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he does have, shall be taken away from him. Here's the picture. The imagery is late at night, and in their day, they had no switches. They had no power. 
once you woke up, you had to stumble your way over to the fireplace, find a hot coal, light a stick, and then apply it to the oil lamp. It's, it's a bit of a process, you see. It's not just like waking up and flipping a switch. And Jesus' point is, you don't start that process if you don't intend to finish the process. Because once you've gotten the light going, there's no one ever who puts the light under a jar to hide the light and then crawls back into bed. That would make no sense. He says, you don't, there in verse 16, light the light and shove it under your bed where it lights only the underside of your mattress. It just doesn't make sense. If you do those things, if you light a light and cover it up, it's not going to do its job. What do you do with it? Jesus says here, you put it on a nightstand. Technically, he says it's a lampstand because we don't have those today. Our closest parallel would be a nightstand where our little lamps stand, right? But either way, once the light is lit, you put it where it can do its job. That's why you light the light to begin with. The point of the light then is so that anyone who comes into the house can then see the light. It's a pretty simple, clear picture, right? Everything else can be seen correctly. The light exists so that it can be seen, and then everything else can be seen the right way. That's the picture that Jesus gives us in verse 16. But in verses 17 and 18, he explains the point. He says, look, I am the light of the world. And when he came into the world, it was as though a light, a lamp had been snapped on in the dead of night where mankind had been living in darkness continually, perpetual night. They couldn't see God at any level. They were stumbling, bumbling in absolute darkness. And all of a sudden, the light flares. And and in Jesus, not only can they see God the Father through the face of his Son, but now for the first time, they can actually see themselves as they actually are. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 talks about this. It says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so as we interpret this text, Jesus is the light that has come into the world and been lit. And it makes no sense to try to cover up that light and put a container on it or shove it under your bed. Jesus says, because look, here are the implications of the fact that I'm now here. Nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor everything secret that will not be known and come to light. He says, now that you can see and even be seen, everything hidden is being dragged out into full daylight and everything that was secret is becoming known. Psalm 90 verse 8 says it this way, our secret sins are visible in the light of your presence. You see, the light of the world is here. And when we look at the person of Christ, we see the face of the Father. And what we find when we see the face of the Father is that he is staring back at us and he sees us, light or no light, accurately. That is a scary thought, folks, that we who once lived in darkness, the light flares. And what do we see? We see the face of holy God right there. And what is he doing? He is staring directly straight back at you and me. He sees us clearly for who we are. There is no confusion in his mind. He doesn't need the light. We do. We need the light to see him. But the result of the light is that everything that had been hidden is now very obvious. We can see ourselves and we can see that God sees us. And everything that was secret is now known. You see, men are excellent at posturing themselves 
Netflix has these documentaries about animals, right? There's all these animals, and, and there are some animals that are excellent at posturing themselves. They puff their chest, and they ruffle their feathers, and they strut in great patterns, and they have these songs that they sing to one another to make themselves attractive. But I'm here to tell you that there is no organism on earth that is better at feather ruffling than mankind. We are really good at this, right? We primp and we preen and our sophisticated brains enable us to present ourselves in sophisticated ways and and we present ourselves to the dark world only what we want them to see about us. Even people whose lives are an absolute mess, they look great. We, as even believers, we come to church, we're dressed nice, we smile nice and we shake hands and yet underneath, deep in our hearts, there can still be sin that we're dealing with and must be dealt with that no one here knows about. Christ rips off the facade that we construct. He is the light that pierces through the veil that we have sought to pull around ourselves as a great cloak, hiding ourselves. You see, the light of the gospel rips off your mask and it stares through your carefully constructed facade. Hebrews 4.13 says it this way, There is now no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When it comes to the person of Christ, Jesus is trying to say here to us, You know who I am. I am the light of the world, and because I am here and shining my light into your life, there is nothing that you can hide, either from God or from yourself. It's very clear. That's the negative side. But the positive side of this light is that you now have full access to the person of God himself. And when you look at Christ, you see the Father the inaccessible, unknowable, infinite God, and He is revealed in a way that you can now comprehend. Why? Because the light of the world has come and He has illumined the face of God for you. You see, this light cuts both ways. And it's for that reason that Jesus says here in verse 18, and He gives us the application point. So in light of the fact that the light's here and you can now see both yourself clearly and God clearly, and now that you know that God sees you clearly, take care how you listen. And this verb that he uses here, to listen, it's, it's in the present tense. It's saying it's to be ongoing. It's to continually be hearing what he's saying. He's saying, now that you've seen the light, pay attention to it. Colossians 3.1 says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on those things, not the things that are here on the earth. See, your knowledge of God is at stake because Jesus says, be careful how you listen, verse 18, for everyone who has the light, to him more light shall be given. But whoever does not have the light, whoever shuts his eyes in the face of the light, whoever seeks to cover it over foolishly, even the light that he thinks he does have will be taken away from him. You see, if you embrace the light, the knowledge of Christ, your knowledge of him will increase. And Jesus promises that, which is incredibly encouraging to those of us who look at that and love the light. Jesus says, to him who has the light, more light is going to come to him. That's the joy of growing in Christ. But on the flip side, if you shut your eyes 
everything you have and all the goodness that you hope to cling to is ultimately going to be ripped away and you'll be standing there with nothing. Look to Christ. Don't miss him. He's made himself as obvious as a spotlight ripping into the blackness of night. A brilliant beam from heaven piercing down through the darkness, ready for your attention so that you might see God in Christ. Don't miss him. You know, a couple weeks ago, it was Emma's spring break. And so my family and I went away for the week, got some vacation time. Some of my wife's family came with us. And, and one of them wanted to go out whale watching, which we had never done. And I thought, well, that ought to be interesting. So let's see how that goes with the two little kids out in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> this could be fun. We'll see. But I thought, you know, my kids are small um, and whales tend to be a long way off. And so they're renting binoculars there. So let's go ahead and just pay the money and rent the binoculars. And that way, if we do see a whale, it'll be real close and the kids can actually see it. Because what's the point of going on a whale watch and seeing a whale half a mile away? Like, if we're going to go out there, let's actually do this and let's see it. So we're out there. And the boat got real close to the whales. I mean, it, it was actually incredible. You see their, their tails sticking up and you see their little backs kind of coming up out of the water. And you can basically see that there's something very large there in the water, but you couldn't actually see the whole whale. And there was a sense in which you're like, okay, that's cool, but it's a little bit disappointing because I, I want to see the whole whale. I want to see like the whole thing. Like if I'm this close to a whale, like this is not a replicable event. I mean, I got my binoculars here. I mean, the whale's only like 75 yards away. I'm, I'm sitting there with my binoculars scanning the ocean for it. Well, at one point, one of the girls had to use the restroom, and so Michelle takes that little one down into the very bowels of the boat, down where nothing can be seen, and I'm standing there at the rail. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this gigantuan, humongous, record-breaking, no, it wasn't actually record-breaking, big whale fully breaches out of the water like 50 yards from the boat, like close enough that it's about to splash you. And this whale is just, boom, there, out of nowhere. No warning, it's there. And then it was gone in about two seconds flat. And in those two seconds, here was my reaction. Where's my camera? Where's my binoculars? Michelle, where are you? <laughs> and I was so distracted by trying to get all the accoutrements just right, my binoculars up, my camera out, and my wife back, <laughs> that I missed the whale. <laughs> I mean, all I saw was this giant spray of water because I wasn't paying enough attention. You see, the whale was close and it was huge. And somehow, because I wasn't paying attention the right way and I was so surprised, I completely missed it. So did my wife and daughter. <laughs> but here's the point. Jesus is close he is obvious, and he is so much bigger than you could ever possibly imagine. And he has come, and the light of God's glory, it has shone down into your heart, and God has put himself on display before your very eyes. I mean, it's right there. And yet, so often we're scrambling, saying, well, I don't have the right translation. My binoculars aren't quite right. And we're looking around saying, hey, hey, did you see that latest worship song? Where, where'd you go? How come you weren't at church this Sunday? And we look around and, and we're distracted by so many different things. 
that we actually miss the point of what God is trying to say to us. This cannot be. He is right there before our eyes. God has sent him there. He has placed him there. He has put him there so that we might comprehend his glory and his greatness and be changed by him. Be changed by the knowledge of that which we have seen. And that is the reason why Jesus says right here, pay attention. Don't miss it. I am the light and I am here and I am shining. So do not miss what I am trying to say to you now. You see, everyone there had all these questions. Jesus, who are you? Jesus, who is this man? I think this guy might be a prophet. I think this guy might actually be God. He's the Messiah. But you know what? I'm pretty good too. I mean, every possible constituency except for the demons missed it. They had their binoculars up looking at the deck of the boat. Guys, get your eyes off yourself and onto him because that's the point. That's why he came. And Jesus makes the promise. Be careful how you listen. Be careful how you pay attention. For whoever has to him more knowledge and more glorious awareness of God and more information than you could ever possibly need in order to know him, it will be given to you. But whoever shuts his eyes, whoever ignores the light, whoever puts a clay pot over top of it and shoves it under their bed, if you ignore the sight of him or if you're too distracted, not taking care of how you're listening, everything you think you have in terms of your knowledge of God, it's going to be ripped away from you. So take care how you listen. The knowledge of Christ, it demands your full attention. Now there's a point too to this, but we're not going to get there in the next four minutes. So we'll save that for just after Easter. All right? Let's close in prayer together. Father God, we thank you for your kindness to us in revealing yourself to us. You are the light that enables us to see clearly. And you have invaded our space through the person of Christ and you have demonstrated your greatness and glory to us in him. So, as we look through these texts and as we live our lives, may we pay close attention to who he is and what he expects out of us. And may we order our lives accordingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.